North Korea is the impossible state. It's a place that stumped leaders and policymakers for more than three decades. It has a complex history, and it has become the United States' top national security priority. Each week on this show, we'll talk with the people who know the most about North Korea. Today on The Impossible State, we have with us not only the very famous Dr. Victor Cha and Dr. Sumi Terry, but we have Eric Brewer of CSIS, who's one of our top international security experts and nuclear policy experts with us to talk about all things going on with North Korea. So Victor and Sue, I want to start out with the national security advisors of Japan and Korea and their meetings in Annapolis this week. What did that all amount to? So this is, a, you know, it's a very important meeting. It's the it's the first sort of meeting of the National Security Advisors, a trilateral meeting of the National Security Advisor. It follows on the um, two plus two with Secretary Blinken and Secretary Austin from the previous month. You know, I don't think there'll be a lot public about this meeting. It'll be much more of, I think, of a meeting of minds on a variety of issues. But, you know, I think we're starting to see some very concrete steps by this, a concrete and sort of determined steps by this administration to really consolidate the alliance position in Asia. Again, starting with the two plus two, getting some of the difficult things out of the way, like signing the SMA with South Korea and agreeing with Japan, the quad meeting of the four heads of state, and then this three-way national security advisors meeting. So I think while the Quad meeting did have deliverables. It was almost a ceremonial start to this idea of alliance rejuvenation. And then I think in this sort of private meeting of the National Security Advisors, you know, the real sort of nitty gritty work gets started, the work plans start getting formed, thing, things like that. So, Sue, these meetings, this is like what we talk about. This is the real work, right? This is the work that goes into this kind of alliance building. And in this case, I think you would, I don't want to put words in your mouth, but is this, is this rebuilding the alliance? Are they repairing relationships here? What's happening in this? No, you said it exactly right. It is repairing after the Trump administration and, you know, just a lot of issues uh, between U.S. and Korea and even, you know, with a burden sharing and others. And now they've concluded that burden sharing deal. Now they're having this very important meeting, the first three-way meeting between the National Security Advisors. And of course, this again follows the two and two, uh, Secretary Blinken and Secretary Austin's trip to the region. So key message here is really we're rebuilding the alliance. We're working with the key allies. And, you know, they're going to cover a number of issues, right? They, they say, for example, they're going to cover every aspect of North Korea policy. So they're going to discuss that. That's going to be number one on their ag- agenda. In addition to China and regional issues like 
covering situation in Burma and other issues like the trilateral relationship between U.S., South Korea, and Japan. And again, the key message here is whether it comes to North Korea or other issues, that U.S. is trying very hard to be on the same page with its allies. So I think this is important. I'm not sure if there any kind of real breakthrough will come out of this meeting, to be honest, whether it's better Korea-Japan relationship or even a breakthrough on North Korea policy. But again, symbolism is still important. And when it comes to Korea-Japan relationship, I'm not sure if there's going to be any kind of breakthrough. But again, atmospheric will be improved and symbolism of that is still important. So I want to bring Eric into the conversation and talk about the article that you and Eric co-authored for Foreign Affairs just recently. But before I do that, I want to ask you and Victor about these meetings. And, and you know, again, both of you have stressed to me in previous episodes of this podcast and also offline that, you know, the real work that needs to be done is getting done in these meetings. North Korea is obviously one of the topics. That's the topic that maybe might be most confounding. So what are you hearing coming out of these talks, the two plus two, these national security meetings? And is there momentum on North Korea? Victor, also, you had some reporting that broke international news this week on NBC Nightly News with Andrea Mitchell about some satellite imagery that we uncovered. First, I want to go to Sue and Sue ask you, you know, what do you think is going on with North Korea amidst these talks? And then, Victor, I want you to jump in and talk about what we found. Well, North Korea has been busy uh, last few weeks, right? So on March 25th, they test fired two short-range ballistic missiles. And the North Korean state media described them as a new type of tactical guided projectiles. They appear to be the same kind of short range ballistic missile system they showed during their military parade in January. But of course, these short range missiles follow the, the other two cruise missiles they tested. And just a few weeks ago, we had Kim Yo-jong, Kim Jong-un's sister, coming out with a statement complaining about U.S. rock joint exercises the day before Secretary Blinken and Secretary Austin arrived in Seoul. So now they are begun to send a message, right? And the message they are sending is that they're going to dial up pressure. And their message they're sending is they don't want to just go back to strategic patient stuff. As the Biden administration is reviewing North Korea policy, they are trying to send a message that if the U.S. wants to engage with North Korea, they don't want any kind of a repeat of what happened before. They don't want to return to Obama administration's strategic patient's policy. Something has to be different. And what the North Koreans are saying is to U.S. that it's U.S.'s turn to come up with something that's different. And so they are going back to what they do best, right? Bluster, issue threats, dial up pressure. And this is what they are doing. They are testing the Biden administration to build up pressure, reverting back to their tried and true tactics of dealing with any new U.S. administration. Victor, what do they expect the Biden administration to do with all this? Listening to Sue, it sort of reminds me, like, if the only tool you have is a hammer, you just use it for everything, right? And so, <laughs> and so North, the North Koreans have this one hammer, and they just use it all the time to try to put pressure on an incoming administration, right? I mean, we have CSIs to the data that shows that this is right out of the North Korean playbook. They did this after Trump was inaugurated. They did it after Obama was first inaugurated. It's a tactic that they've used. So I think it's a reaction to three things. The first, it's a reaction to 
they feel compelled to react to the exercises, even though the U.S. ROK exercises were greatly toned down because of COVID and for other reasons, right? Um, second, it's it's sort of it's almost a knee jerk reaction, saying you know we're not going to accept strategic patience. Now there are probably other ways they, that one could theoretically think of doing that to convey the message that you don't want strategic patience. But like I said, they only have one tool; it's a hammer, and they just use it all the time. You know, third, of course, it's a new administration. They're trying to operate from a position of strength. In addition to the things that Sue talked about on the missile front and Kim Yo Jong's statements, you know, we had satellite imagery last week, pretty clear pictures from March 30th that showed, you know, plumes of smoke coming out of the thermal plant associated with the radiochemical laboratory, which is a sign of activity when it's been inactive for months, sign of activity in the radiochemical laboratory area, which is a sign that they may either be about to or already have been in a process of reprocessing plutonium. We have new images coming out. They're satellite images, but they're thermal imagery now. Heat signatures that show activity not just at the reprocessing lab at Yongbyon, but at the centrifuge plant, which again suggests that they're not just reprocessing plutonium from the the so-called long building or the lab, but they may actually also be spinning centrifuge tubes to try to extract enriched uranium for, you know, a different type of nuclear weapon. So, so again, this is part of the North Korean playbook. It's pressure tactics. But, you know, we were the first to break this news on this reprocessing capability. And, you know, from an administration's perspective, I'm sure they see it as all concerning. But at the same time, I don't think they're going to overreact. Yeah. And I'm not sure what North Korea expects the Biden administration to do. I mean, I can't imagine Joe Biden's going to say, okay, well, we're going to give Kim Jong-un a meeting the way Trump did and to start to have that kind of dance go on. I don't think they will either. I mean, you know, I think they may do some meetings, but they're certainly not going to do, you know, a, a summit level meeting. I mean, a lot of it will depend on what this policy review that they're doing turns out. And so we're all kind of waiting for that. The Biden administration actively right now is conducting a North Korea policy review. And when do we expect that we may, you know, see some actual result of that? Well, I thought the initial schedule was of this month. And North Koreans know that the Biden administration is doing this policy review. And this is why what they're doing is in, in a way to influence, have some impact on that policy. But I thought it was supposed to be sometime soon. I would add on top of that, too. I mean, in addition to, I think, a lot of the political reasons that Victor and Sue talked about, for North Korea continuing this activity now and conducting these recent missile tests, there's a lot of te- very good technical reasons why I think North Korea is also doing this, right? Particularly the short-range missile test that it's carried out. This kind of builds on the progress and, and some of the capabilities that North Korea uh, has made and developed in, in recent years, right? Although we saw the moratorium on longer-range testing, that short-range testing certainly continued and actually picked up. And so I think that's certainly an effort to to continue those capabilities, as well as the efforts that we've seen at Yongbyon to to continue to build out its nuclear arsenal. So I think there's also that that rationale that's being applied to this as well. Like Eric was saying, there's some speculation that particularly the ballistic missile tests, the short-range ballistic missile tests, may have been testing sort of a, a much heavier warhead, which would give them even further options in terms of what they could do with short-range uh, ballistic missiles. But as far as I know, that's that's speculation. But like Eric said, you know, that that's another reason for why they would test 
these short-range missiles. As Joe Bermudez has reminded me, these tests also come after the conclusion of the winter training cycle, where we have seen them at the end of the winter training cycle do missile, missile demonstrations. Right. Now, Eric, you and Sue recently co-authored an article for Foreign Affairs that's making a lot of waves. The article is entitled, It's Time for a Realistic Bargain with North Korea. What do you guys mean by that? And what would that look like? Yeah, so we, you know, this article kind of, I think, starts from, you know, recognizing two realities, right? The first reality is that North Korea is not going to give up its nuclear weapons anytime soon, right? Denuclearization is not really in the cards for the foreseeable future. And I think there's, you know, wide agreement on that. And the second reality is that as bad as things seem now with North Korea's nuclear missile capabilities, it can still get substantially worse in ways that make it harder for the U.S. to deter North Korea and harder to assure allies in the region. And so our argument was that rather than focusing on denuclearization as the near-term goal, to focus on really trying to limit and reduce the threat that's posed by North Korea. And in reality, this probably means focusing on a lot of those capabilities that North Korea either hasn't yet developed or hasn't yet perfected. Things like solid-fueled ICBMs, tactical nuclear weapons, SLBMs, and other types of reentry vehicles that can make it a lot harder for U.S. missile defenses to defeat. And a lot of these capabilities, if they were ever realized, would give North Korea, I think, greater coercive leverage potentially in a conflict. And those, so the U.S. has a real interest in not seeing some of these capabilities come to fruition. And so, you know, I think in reality, we're better served by focusing on some of these, uh, trying to limit these qualitative improvements rather than just focusing on the quantity of nuclear weapons that North Korea has, because as we note, you know, it already has enough material for 60. As, you know, Victor just talked about, it's continuing to produce more and more every year. So let's focus on some of these other types of capabilities. But, you know, this is, a, this is a, I think, an argument we make with our eyes wide open. Uh, there's a lot of challenges to this approach, ranging from verification to some of the impacts that it's going to have on other U.S. policies in the region. So, you know, we think it's something worth trying but fully recognize that, like other U.S. policies, this may indeed fail. But you're not, you're not suggesting that the United States can ultimately live with a, a nuclear North Korea, are you? Well, I mean, we live with a nuclear North Korea every day. So, you know, but I think that we can still have the aspirational goal and a long-term goal of denuclearization. I think there's a whole lot of reasons why that's still a valuable goal. But from the practical standpoint, I think we have to focus on limiting the threat that it poses, working to strengthen our, our relationship with our allies and strengthening some of those capabilities rather than trying to shoot for a near-term denuclearization. So I think regular listeners of Impossible State Podcast knows that I have a bit of a reputation as a hardliner when it comes to North Korea policy. Right. So that's why, that's why getting Sue to co-author this article with you is, you know, everybody is talking. She, she's not. She's she was not pretty easy liner. to convince. Is, it wasn't that she's hard. The, yeah, she's, not, she's the Hawks hardliner. Right. right. She's, I mean, she's the right of a hawk. So. It's true. In terms of U.S.-North Korea policy, I'm someone who has advocated not only maximum pressure, but massive pressure using all available diplomatic, economic and covert means to basically convince the Kim regime that unless he, Kim, makes the right decision, that the regime could face potential regime instability. That always has been my line. And it's because, again, you know, North Korea is not willing to give up nuclear weapons. They do not see nuclear weapons as a bargaining chip that if Pyongyang is not presented with the risk of regime instability, they will hold on to WMDs and so on. But that said, 
you know, this is a long game, right? The pressure campaign is a long game. And frankly, I'm not sure if there is any sort of a political will in Washington to effectively pursue this policy. And the current reality is, as Eric said, you know, while we're waiting, North Korea's nuclear capability is only increasing in size and sophistication, right? Victor talked about this and Eric just talked about this. They are continuing to produce nuclear weapons at rapid rate. And so when you look at that reality, what do we do going forward? That's a little bit more realistic, right? Again, we pointed out in this piece that another round of all or nothing diplomatic efforts is not going to succeed, as we've seen in the past few years. We've seen this also in Hanoi. North Korea is not going to relinquish nuclear weapons. So we need to at least explore whether it is in our interest to pursue a more limited strategy. Again, we have eyes wide open on this. I'm just asking, is it possible to reduce North Korea's threat? In the end, let me be very frank, my gut instinct says that it's not going to necessarily work. We'll be probably stuck with a containment strategy, but I do think that we need to explore it. Now, we are also very careful in the piece to point out what a good agreement might look like. And we say a bad agreement is not, this is, you know, that's worse than status quo. And a good agreement would have to verifiably, and that's the key word, verifiably reduce the threat from North Korea's nuclear weapons without endangering the security of our allies, Japan and South Korea, and so on. And that we should not give unearned concessions to North Korea. So no premature sanctions relief and so on. So that's where we are. It's interesting. Victor, what do you think of all this? So I read the article too. I thought it was very interesting. I agree. I think it's a, it's an important piece. Uh, uh, I think the sun and the sand is making Sue soft, maybe. So. <laughs> <laughs> For our listeners, Su- Sue's enjoying a little R&R, so yeah. No, I, I'm, I'm just kidding. I mean, I think it's a very serious piece. And I think like most of these arguments, you know, they're very carefully thought out. They're carefully calibrated. The hard part is not deciding what we want, right? What the United States want. That's not the hard part. The hard part is figuring out what we give. And when we can't get what we want with what we give, do we give more, right? In the end, that's what it always comes down to. And so I think it's a, it's a very strong plan. But when it comes to practice, the dilemma we always face is, what do we give to get what we want? And we can come to the table and say, this is what we're willing to give, you know, preliminary lifting of sanctions for verifiable steps by North Korea. And the North Koreans don't meet us there. In fact, they don't even meet us halfway. And then we have to decide, are we going to give this or are we going to give this plus Delta? And at the same time, you have the South Koreans on one side saying, yes, give more, right? The Chinese saying, yes, give more. And the Japanese saying, no, don't give, don't give more. And that, you know, that is the meat of the negotiation, right? That's always, I think, the really difficult part. But I think it's an important piece because, you know, I mean, you know, Sue is on North Korea policy. She's pretty far right on the spectrum. And so she, in a sense, this piece is giving the Biden administration a little bit more room. You know, it's sort of covering their right flank, giving them a little bit more room on this particular issue. But I think both Eric and Sue know that this is not easy at all. I mean, once it gets put into practice, dealing with North Korea, and it's always dealing with them in a regional context, becomes infinitely more frustrating and complex because of all of the cross-cutting pressure. I completely agree with with Victor on this, on the points that he raised. 
I'm no softy. Uh, I like to think I'm no softy when it comes to North Korea, you know, having been a detail lead on the National Security Council in the Trump administration, you know, working uh, North Korea when maximum pressure was underway. So I do, you know, I do see the value in a lot of those pressure tactics. And I, I, I think, you know, Bosu and I would agree that there's absolutely a role for that to achieve the strategy uh, in the paper. To Victor's point, right, I think we all know, you know, from past iterations of negotiations with North Korea, we all kind of have the the menu and sort of the concept of, you know, nuclear restrictions for sanctions relief, right? Like that's kind of the world that we we all kind of know and, and have explored before. And so, yeah, it's a big question about how much sanctions relief do you actually give North Korea for some of those concessions? You know, one thing we, we talk about a little bit in the piece and that, that I've been thinking uh, about, as have others, is when you move it from this, what has kind of to date been a non-proliferation problem or a proliferation problem to trying to tackle some of these, you know, delivery systems and, you know, things like RVs and a whole sort of new set of capabilities that is kind of more in the arms control arena, what types of other concessions might North Korea seek that are not in the sanctions realm, right? Like, I think we we talked a little bit about seeking limits to U.S. or regional missile defenses, seeking limits to South Korea's submarine program and other sorts of strike systems that South Korea is developing. So you very quickly get into this whole other range of things that, you know, really complicate the picture and that make it a lot harder and that pose really important trade-offs that are in tension with a lot of the other U.S. policies, both in the region and also from a non-proliferation perspective. So, Eric, how do you balance all this? It's incredibly challenging, right? And I think there's no singular answer for it. I think, you know, as you talked about, it's something we need to explore. It's something, you know, we, we don't know what North Korea might ask for by going into some of these discussions. And so, it's something we just have to take up, but with eyes wide open and with our priorities and objectives in mind. And again, not be uh, not be afraid to find a good deal and the right deal, but also, you know, not be afraid to walk away from from a bad deal. And beyond, you know, what Victor mentioned about what are we prepared to give on the sanctions front and anything else, even if we pass all that and we have a deal, the biggest obstacle is going to be on verification. And Victor knows this more than anybody, uh, you know. So as hard as it is to have any kind of deal with North Korea, and that's a long road before we can even get there. History has shown repeatedly that they are resistant to any kind of hardcore verification measures. So that's going to be another problem too, even after the deal. So again, as Eric pointed out, we, we are really have our eyes wide open. This is not going to be easy process or easy road at all. But again, all we are saying is, it's time to at least think about it. And I'm sure this is exactly what the Biden administration is right now. It's at least on, on the menu as they're talking about North Korea and conducting North Korea policy review. One of the interesting things I think that this piece raises is that if, as Eric and Sue have said, if this starts moving into discussing issues besides just on the U.S. side, right, besides just sanctions lifting, and they start to go into things like limitations on missile defense or something with regard to South Korean capability, submarines or whatever it is. I mean, that would be interesting to see if the North Koreans would be interested in things like that, because if they were interested in it, then you know it re- would really lend credence to the argument that North Korea is looking for some sort of mutual security. But at least thus far in sort of our, our discussions, the history of negotiations with North Korea, they really haven't been interested in those things, right? They've been just interested in sanctions lifting and 
taking them off the terrorism list and trading with the Enemy Act and, you know, the idea of mutual inspections of bases or things like that just have not been, they have not been interested in that. Now, there are a couple of caveats. One is South Korean capabilities today are different from what they were, you know, 15 years ago, right? And so maybe there are things there that the North Koreans do see as as threatening. And then the other piece of this is also missile defense today is not what it was 15 years ago. So maybe there's some interest there. But but again, I think one of the things is that if the Biden administration does more to rejuvenate their alliances by doing more things on extended deterrence, you know, whether that's another THAAD battery or whether it's more expand radar it's, or it's other sorts of things in the region, and I'm, I'm, I'm not saying they will, but, you know, if they do, then that sort of puts more potential chips on the table that North Korea might be interested in. But but again, the North Koreans have never talked about the threat from South Korea, right? Because I think they always feel like the South Koreans are constrained by the United States. But it would be interesting to see if they actually became interested in, in some of these things that uh, Eric and Sue are talking about. And they may not do it, you know, out of genuine interest, right, for that search for security that you're talking about. They could also do it as a way to, you know, their whatever their initial ask is, it's certainly probably something that we wouldn't ever entertain or that our allies wouldn't ever want to entertain. It'll probably go beyond that. This could also be used as a tactic, though, to achieve, you know, North Korea's longstanding objectives that it's used through negotiations and its nuclear buildup to divide the United States and its allies and to sort of pry on those cleavages. I mean, that's something that we, we talk a little bit about in the article that they might see as in their interest as well. Do you all sense that something's changed with North Korea after the Trump administration, or are we dealing with more of the same here? Well, right now, I don't, I don't see any sign that they have anything have really changed. You know, they were quiet. I actually expected North Korea to revert to a campaign of testing earlier than now. I think they, they took their time. I don't know if it's COVID-related or they're being a little bit more cautious. But, you know, with recent missile testing, that's more of a North Korea that we love and know very well, right? So I don't see any sign that they have changed. I think Kim Jong-un is probably very disappointed that Trump did not re-win the election. And I do think they are genuinely concerned that the Biden administration will return to sort of the Obama era strategic patience. So we'll see how Kim Jong calculates all this. My expectation is fully that North Korea will have to amp up pressure. There's just no other playbook for North Korea. So in that sense, I do think that, you know, we should just expect that more testing to come in the next few months. Yeah, well, I mean, now forever, we're going to think of it as their hammer, because Victor said, they've only got one hammer, that's the playbook. And so, you know, it's a really great way of thinking of it. So I've said on this show before that, you know, that COVID is the real variable here. And we'll know whether it really has affected North Korean behavior, depending on how they behave after Biden was inaugurated. So Biden's been inaugurated. You know, they've done four sets of, of tests. And now it looks like they're reprocessing fissile materials. So clearly it hasn't been enough of a variable that it's affected North Korean external behavior. Having said that, you know, it's a reality that they're shut down, right? They they continue to be shut down. There's some, you know, now there's some reports that their ships are out, right? Perhaps getting coal from China illegally. C4 ADS had some reports out on that. So maybe there's some of that going on. 
But I think the other piece that's interesting is this humanitarian threat. I mean, the reality is, is they may do some of this stuff illegally, but they're not going to open the border, even with China, for a long time because of COVID, the fear of COVID. And, you know, they are on the list for distribution from COVAX, but it's like a very small percentage of the population that will get would get vaccinated. So, you know, th- this humanitarian piece is an interesting one. And, you know, the Obama administration, when they did the one deal they did in 2012, the main carrot was the humanitarian piece, right? The whatever it was, 250,000 tons of food aid. That's another piece on the giving side besides sanction lifting that, that we don't know how responsive they'll be to something on the, along those lines. Let me ask you guys something. So, you know, I, I've assumed and I'm sure a lot of people assume that to the extent that North Koreans are vaccinated, they're going to be using Chinese vaccine or Russian vaccine. Why wouldn't the United States dangle in front of them? You know, we could buy you, we could provide you with, you know, Pfizer or Moderna or J&J vaccine that we know is extremely effective. And maybe that's part of the diplomacy here would fit into our humanitarian posture for sure. Or is that going too far? No, I mean, so the North Koreans have said they want only WHO approved vaccines. So that's Pfizer. I don't know what else. Have they approved AZ? I can't. I don't know what else they've approved. And so for that reason, they would not be willing to take the Chinese vaccine. But exactly for that reason, I think we should have the Chinese offer them the Chinese vaccine. I mean, I think I think that's what we sh- we should have the Chinese vaccinate North Korea. I mean, you know, it's their border problem. And it's their ally. It's their ally and have them take some responsibility, you know, with the condition that North Korea has to do something on the threat side if they're going to get these vaccines. If, if China has those sorts of stakes in North Korea where they actually have to pay for North Korean good behavior then, you know, I think they're going to take it a lot more seriously than than when we get stuck paying for North Korean good behavior and they violate that. There's no cost to China. So, you know, I think we should have the Chinese give them their vaccine. Can we compel China to do that? That's a tough one. I just don't know, especially given, you know, the Anchorage meeting and the state of U.S.-China relations. But one of the things they did say coming out of the Anchorage meeting, was there, there were certain things where they saw an overlap of interests, right? And one of them was, you know, it was climate, Iran, I think, and and North Korea were the three things. I don't know, Eric, if there how much overlap there is on Iran between the US and China, but you know, that's kind of what they said. So, you know, it's possible. I guess the final question I have for you all is if it's time to rethink our bargain with North Korea, what is the first step like in showing some kind of different strategy? Because, you know, clearly North Korea is expecting a repeat of the Obama administration, right? And as you guys have said in this podcast and other places, you know, it, it's going to be different. So so what does the Biden administration, in your view, need to do initially to try to uh, engage the North Koreans in a more realistic bargain? I mean, I think the first thing that they can do is they can signal a willingness to a smaller deal. And to something that doesn't aim for denuclearization in, in the near term. There was a statement that the uh, State Department press secretary made that denuclearization is going to be at the center of the U.S.-North Korea strategy, right? And with the caveat of, you know, they don't want to prejudge the outcome of the policy review. And, you know, there was, you know, from those who don't like that, that position, there was some, some criticism of it on social media. But I think, you know, I don't think that position is necessarily incompatible with an approach that has the door open 
for an approach that seeks to reduce the threat rather than eliminate it entirely. But I do think there's some additional messaging and some additional you know, caveats that the U.S. should and, and could add to that. And when it thinks about how it wants to message North Korea to signal, yes, you know, denuclearization may be the long term goal. And that's that's still our goal. And we share that goal with our allies. But we are interested in exploring other deals and arrangements short of that in the interim. I don't think the United States should make any type of unilateral concessions right at the outset just to maybe, you know, hopefully to to get North Korea to go along with that or to, to show that it's taking some sort of different approach. I don't think that'll be useful. I think that would backfire. I think North Korea would pocket that and and sort of move on. But I think there's, a, at a minimum, a different, a slightly different approach the U.S. can take when it comes to messaging. But as the, the early phase of this has, has shown, it takes two to have a dialogue. And, and North Korea wasn't responsive at the outset. So ultimately, you know, you're going to need them to respond to sit down at the table. So, Andrew, you asked the toughest question, and this is going to be the very big, it's going to be the issue. This is why we are going to be at an impasse for a long time. Because other than what Eric suggested in terms of messaging and everything else, it's going to be tough. And we don't advocate any arms control deal is better than no arms control deal. No, we don't. We don't advocate premature sanctions relief, for example. The only thing we can do is what Eric suggested. And if North Koreans are not interested, then they're not interested. We cannot give unearned concessions to North Korea. We cannot give sanctions relief when North Koreans have not done anything but continue on with this campaign of testing, reverting back to provocations. We can't do that. The Biden administration is not going to do that. That's an unrealistic thing to ask of them. So we'll see if North Korea is interested. And if they are not, then this impasse has to continue. So, you know, I just want to reiterate that point that we're not saying any deal is a good deal. There is such thing as a good deal and a bad deal. And giving unearned premature sanctions relief to North Korea is not a good step forward. You know, I have to emphasize that point. Absolutely. Victor, final word. The points that both Eric and Sue are making are very well taken. You know, the worst thing to be with North Korea is desperate for a deal. You can't want it more than they want it. And you can't want it more than your allies want it. If you go in with those sorts of, with that sort of compass, and you work with the elements that Sue and Eric have talked about in your paper, then that's a good strategy going in. Thank you all. This has been a fascinating discussion, a lot to think about for the Biden administration, a lot to think about for people in the policy community, and a lot for all of us in the world just to follow as this saga continues on, on the impossible state. If you have a question for one of our experts about the impossible state, email us at impossiblestate at csis.org. If you want to dive deeper into the issues surrounding North Korea, check out Beyond Parallel. That's our micro website that's dedicated to bringing a better understanding of the Korean peninsula. You can find it at beyondparallel.csis.org. And don't forget to leave us a review on Apple Podcasts. That's so more listeners can find us. It's very helpful. We're now also streaming on Spotify, so you can find us there too, where you find all your music. How cool is that? And don't forget to subscribe wherever you get your podcasts. This is The Impossible State.